Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Katrin Eitel, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Social Anthropology and Cultural Studies at the University of Zurich and author of Recycling Infrastructures in Cambodia, Circularity, Waste and Urban Life in Phnom Penh, published in Routledge's Contemporary Southeast Asia series in 2023. Welcome, Katrin. Thanks, Michelle, for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Let's start with a very basic question. How did you get interested in this topic? That's a very good question, I think. <laughs> it's actually somehow, I mean, the whole book is an, uh, actually an outcome of my PhD thesis that I wrote about recycling economy in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And I somehow came up with this topic while I was searching for a topic <laughs> that combines my interests of environmental matters and issues, international power regimes, urbanity, policies and also feminist science and technologies and some other things. I was actually literally stumbling over this waste topic while I was in Southeast Asia in 2017. And waste was literally patterning whole Cambodia and especially the cities. Actually, it was smelly and dirty. And yes, just as it, its attributes, somehow it sticks to me and made me think about it. So yeah. So eventually it became a study about waste and also about the politics and infrastructure of waste and what does this mean for waste uh, management endeavors and uh, clean and green visions of a future that people and actors might have in mind while looking on waste management. And also, of course, I was very much interested in how people locally handled uh, waste and how they practiced a certain recycling infrastructure in the city of Phnom Penh. Of course, that raises the question of how waste works globally and how international waste and it's the economy of international waste actually affects countries like Cambodia. Do you mind speaking a little to that? Waste in its own right, so to say, is relational and it's never locally somehow. So that means that waste in its materials aspects might be laying around on site maybe, but it always has wider influences and wider strengths to other topics and origins and of lives and further. So it's always very embedded in globally interconnected relationships. So the global recycling economy or waste economy, let's stick with the terminus of recycling maybe here, is of course one that is at the moment under special scrutiny. So I think international actors and international governments are trying to to minimize, of course, the amount of waste that we have on our planet. And then that leads somehow to certain programs, let's say it like that, and certain visions about how to handle waste in a proper way, so to speak. 
So actually this whole waste management complex is very much locally negotiated and implemented at the end, but is transported and lead by visions that are very much coming from Global North, for example. So, I mean, globally, how much rubbish moves to countries like Cambodia? Like, how much is involved in this waste or um, recycling economy? Yeah, since China has somehow abandoned the import of plastic, especially plastic, but also other recycling materials, but especially plastic in 2018, there was a shift somehow from plastics that moved from global north countries to China towards other uh, countries in Southeast Asia, for example, Malaysia. But Cambodia wasn't, is not on the list somehow. <laughs> so, of course, sometimes there is waste somehow occasionally arriving on the shores, but normally Cambodia has not the capacities to process and recycle plastics. So normally not much waste from abroad in the material sense is arriving in Cambodia nowadays. But this may, might change and this is not something set up. Mm, yeah, it, it's really interesting. It's quite a fluid situation, I guess, in that respect. But within Cambodia itself then, how much waste is produced there? Like, I know that's hard to put a number on, but what sort of forms of waste are we talking about, I guess I'm asking? In Cambodia, there are two separate waste categories, I would say, that are mainly produced. The one is just in, as, as in every other country, I guess. So there is this, this what is called solid waste, that it means that it's every waste that is solid that is produced by households and which also includes organic waste, for example, but not all the materials that are recyclable, for example, plastic, aluminium, a copper, for example, and so on. So, or styrofoam materials. And those materials are actually, those recyclable, theoretically <laughs> recyclable materials are the materials which I was mainly interested in because they are recycled in a certain manner, but not sufficiently. So, of course, uh, there is a huge problem on how to recycle those materials in Cambodia because there are not a lot of processing plants in the country. But there is a recycling infrastructure on site, which is rather the, often labeled as informal and which was somehow my object of inquiry also, so to speak. And those people that are the infrastructure, the recycling infrastructure, they make sure that these materials are transported further to other intermediaries and eventually often sent abroad to other processing plants. So in some ways, Cambodia is a source for the international waste economy rather than destination for it in that sense. But in the book, you talk about a different kind of international exchange around waste, and that is the impact of the colonial presence on how waste is imagined by Cambodians and how those imaginings really affect contemporary understandings of waste in Cambodia. Could you speak to that topic for a minute? Um, so, yeah, waste has, of course, besides of its material aspects and experiences, it has, of course, other relations too. And one of these relations, how waste is perceived in a Cambodian context, is very much related to its history, so the country's history. And that I'm not only talking about colonial influences from nations or single colonial nations that define themselves as colonized, like the French, for example, that colonized or tried to colonize or however Cambodia in the 19th century and until 1950s, approximately. But also, I'm also talking about foreign influences in the form of U.S. Americans who do, that they never felt like or they never would identify themselves as colonizers, for example, of Cambodia. But eventually they were they had a huge presence in the country over a period of 100 years, at least. And then there was a strong influence of Vietnamese, for example, of course, uh, and many other countries, especially in the 90s, after abolishment somehow of the Khmer Rouge regime. So what I want to say, actually, is that plastic 
and also aluminium has ever since kind of very prestigious and wealth connotated meaning in Cambodia. So this is something that was quite rare. It was not easily to get, especially during the dark periods of the Khmer Rouge, the whole country shut down somehow. So it was not possible to get into the country and also it wasn't possible for any markets to, to evolve further. Whereas in other regions or other countries like Thailand or Vietnam, there could be, there was a, let's say it kind of slow or successively marketization of the country. And after the period of the Khmer Rouge, waste kind of, or not only waste, but plastic and aluminium items are where suddenly through a rampant marketization coming into the country. And this was quite, this leads to two aspects. First of all, the aspect that that these items were very much perceived as something that coming from a better world, from something that is modernity, from something, something that promises wealth. And on the other hand side, that causes, of course, other problems because Cambodia was never in the position to slowly somehow getting used to the dealing and processing of these materials and their waste, actually, eventually. Yeah, it's interesting. It really reminds me of when I was first in Indonesia in the early 90s and there was just plastic rubbish everywhere. And my personal thesis on this, and it actually echoes with what you say in the book, is that these plastic, these non-biodegradable materials replace things like banana leaves and and other forms of organic packaging, which had been so successful and which it didn't matter if you threw on the side of the road. And learning to actually deal with plastic waste differently is, is quite a challenge, I think, not just in Cambodia, but in those earlier decades in places like Indonesia. And I mean, related to that, of course, anyone who's been to Southeast Asia will have likely seen people burning plastic and other rubbish on the side of the road. And you, you talk about this in the book. But thinking about how waste management works more broadly, how do we understand this, this sort of economy of waste or recycling that you're talking about in Cambodia itself? The point is in Cambodia that, as I just mentioned, I mean, the theoretically uh, recyclable materials like plastic, aluminium, copper and so on are mainly collected and sold, I mean, and transferred further by waste pickers, so-called edgeis, but not all of these waste pickers call themselves edgeis. So there are different groups of waste pickers in the country. My research group somehow was located in Phnom Penh and was in contact with several waste picker groups. And there are those who collect, for example, during the day and those who collect during the night, but there are only a few of them. And also a few of them also work on landfills in the city. So the last two groups actually don't call themselves HI, but the first one does. And the first one is also the biggest group. So there are approximately, there are estimations of that there are approximately 2,000 until 3,000 waste pickers, HIs in the city roaming through the districts and collecting waste either from the streets, from garbage cans and bins, or from directly from households. So that is actually the situation in Phnom Penh and also counts for overall Cambodia. In contrast to this so-called and often labeled, but I mean, this is redevaluing labeling of this economy as informal, there is also an informal economy, waste economy, but this is only considering and collecting solid waste and not recyclable items. So we'll return to the story of the EDGA themselves in a minute, but what happens after they collect the waste? Like what, what happens further up upstream from that initial process? 
So normally, I mean, they collect recyclables. So normally around two shifts, somehow one could speak about a day, uh, they return to their depots, which are mostly, I, don't, I mean, often led by Vietnamese owners. HIs are often Khmer. So, and then these depots, they sell their collected items and they are further processed. For example, the plastic around the plastic bottle is removed or whatever. So it's cleaned up and separated according to the material. And then it goes further to other intermediaries. And that really depends on how the network is structured from different, seen from different perspectives of the depots and the intermediaries. But eventually, I mean, it could be that there are two or three further intermediaries until the recyclables are transported abroad eventually. But it could be also that the HIs, for example, sell their recyclables to a very big depot there. They have the possibilities in, to process everything already in a manner that it could be exported abroad immediately. So it really depends on, but yeah. And getting down into the weeds now, I'm sure the listeners would be really interested in hearing about your experiences actually following the HIs around in their daily work. Like, I mean, they collect rubbish, they take it to the depot, but what does a day look like? What does a waste picker do? Yeah, that's quite different, of course, from waste pickers group to waste pickers groups. And I actually identify, I mean, waste pickers groups according to their affiliation and yeah, also dependency somehow, but also, I mean, connection to the depot they're working for. So normally waste pickers have depots they work for and they stick to them because the, there is not no need normally to, to change the depots because the prices are all the same, more or less. So they stick to them and then they build a kind of community of practice, I would say. So, and within these communities of practice of different HI groups, the daily outlook is quite different, of course, but also quite similar. So I think, so speaking from one of my waste pickers, is for example, they wake up early in the morning, they finish everything in the household and make kids ready to go for school or kindergarten, or they just take them with them. And then they're leaving around 6 a.m. to go for waste picking and returning approximately around 12. Then they sell their goods that they have collected and transport in their push carts. So that push cart is a quite important tool to collect all the recyclables. Because if they wouldn't have a pushcart, there would be a higher need for them to go more often back and forth between the city, quote unquote, and, and the depot to sell recyclables because they're quite heavy after a while and they can't take them at all at once. So I think that is one point that they go back to normally they go back around 12 and then they go heading back home. They are cooking for their children. They're taking a nap and then they start again at around 3 p.m. and work until 6 or sometimes 7 p.m. And then they are often sitting together at the end and exchanging news or experiences, has just having a chat together before they are heading back home again. Anyone who's been to Cambodia knows that it gets pretty hot. How do, like, what's the sort of physicality of that kind of work? You talk about this quite evocatively in the book about the smells of the work, but what else do we understand? You know, what else is the experience like physically? Yeah, uh, smell is definitely one <laughs> one big point. But voice pickers usually used to say to tell me that they don't dare about it anymore because they just get used to it. So yeah, smell is one point. But of course, there are a lot of toxic other exposures <laughs> and a lot of health threats that come with this profession of waste picking. Definitely, normally this is a job that can be done a certain amount of time. But after a while, of course, waste pickers face more illnesses and health impacts from the work they do. So yeah, that's definitely a physical effect they perceive from their work. 
And if they do get ill, are there services that they can turn to? What happens? Yeah, that's a good question. So if they, those people get ill, actually nobody replaces them or something like that. I mean, as I said, it's kind of, it's not a formalized economy in the sense of contracts or a specialized, very defined idea of who works for what. But of course, in this so-called informal sector, everybody works on its own, but not at all together. So it's still a very very, uh, strong network they're working in and they're a part of, which means when they get ill, nobody replaces them. But it doesn't mean that that whole infrastructure is just breaking down, not at all. So that just means that some some work is undone, but as waste has not really a, you know, a date to be where it needs to be collected or something. I mean, in the longer run, of course it does, but in the short or not. So it doesn't matter, it just lays around further. And are there any like associations of waste pickers or more, you're talking about the sort of informal communities, but any kind of mutual assurance communities or other sorts of communities that would provide like financial support if someone fell very ill? No, not at all, unfortunately. So actually, there are a lot of programs and international influence in in Cambodia and generally that bring up programs that might help. And often they are not so successful. For example, there was the implementation of an ID poor card, which was initially an idea which comes from certain uh, transnational actors, mainly from the global north, that the idea of this ID poor card was actually to make sure that people that are precisely or especially poor, the poorest of the poor, so to speak, that they receive any additional insurance or yeah, subsidies in case they are, for example, ill and not able to go to work or something. But that actually didn't work out well. And most of the waste pickers, for example, I talked with never received these ID poor cars. So, for example, because they were still registered at their home, their villages, for example, which normally in rural areas and not in Phnom Penh, where they moved to for working. So, yeah, there are some programs, but actually not quite successful. There are some other NGOs that work, for example, with protection gear, for example, to provide waste pickers with gloves, for example, or other helpful tools to make sure that they are not in direct, direct contact with hazardous waste, for example. But often waste pickers just don't use it because they do not feel comfortable wearing gloves as they are not sensitive enough to these gloves to recognize by hand what kind of materials are in the darkness of the bin, for example. Yeah, and then there's one labor organization, and that is really the only one <laughs> which deals with labor issues in generally, but also needs, but more on a, yeah, how to say it's not on a financial compensation level, but rather on a structural information uh, helping level, so to speak. So you've just been talking about the waste pickers picking through the bins. And in the book, you tell us that sometimes they find treasures, or at least they think they're going to find treasures. What sort of treasures do they think they will find? But also how important is the search for treasure in itself important as a way of adding meaning to the job? Yeah, I brought that example in because it's sometimes people, waste picker told me about it. Actually, what they define as treasure is not what we define as treasure. So I made the example with a $100 note, which I have heard occasionally from different waste pickers, but I often think they told me because they knew that I can, how to handle with the, the idea of a $100 note. Because while I was walking with waste pickers throughout the city, they often find treasures in the sense of old used materials, for example, kitchen equipment materials or whatever that really was were literally not usable anymore, but they found a sense or a useful functionality in it and they just collected them 
these items for themselves. So these are the, the I would say, daily treasures that they find. <laughs> the define, I, I mean, the treasures on, on its own are not the point why people start waste picking. It's a nice add-on, I would say. I was particularly interested in it as a form of meaning making. So it may not be what brings people to the job, but does it give a sense of purpose to the job in a way that is particular or not at all? I haven't seen that <laughs> somehow, that this is a quite meaningful category for them or makes the job more meaningful. I think what makes the job really meaningful for them is that they are able, especially as a woman, that they are able to to earn a family's living, for example, that they are able to provide other visions of a future to their children, that they are able to send money back, for example, to their parents' house, which are normally located in rural areas. And often children of them are still living in rural areas and only waste pickers move to the city and send them money back. And I mean, this is a common story about other kinds of women working in Phnom Penh, right? Often there's a lot written about garment workers as a source of income for family in the village and as a form of social mobility for a broader family. And you talk at more length in the book about the gendered aspects of waste picking from stories of women who are busy working while their husbands are drinking and gambling, but also experiences of harassment. Can you talk a bit about what you describe as the triple burden carried by female waste pickers and these these sort of gendered experiences of that work? Female HIs, and I want to highlight that, I haven't done that. I think that most of the HIs and waste pickers collecting waste are female. So I would say 80% of the whole HIs groups are female. In this way, they face a kind of triple burden because, first of all, they are female. <laughs> Secondly, they are poor. And third, they are waste pickers. So are different almost discrimination categories that intersect altogether and makes it, makes it not easier for a waste picker to collect trash in Phnom Penh Street. So they daily face harassment, for example. This is a quite common picture, actually. And it comes from male urban dwellers, as I perceived, but also, for example, by male sintry workers and other solid waste management workers. That means the solid waste management, the formal solid waste management system that also exists in the city is predominantly male. So there are a lot of uh, conflict zones, actually, especially on the streets. For example, when um, Sintry workers collect uh, solid waste from households, and often uh, households do not separate between solid waste and recyclable items, for example. So that means that in the garbage bin, there are both. In this regard, Sintry workers started to separate recyclable items from non-recyclable items on their own as well, at the beginning, so to speak. In this way, they kind of take over a job that is actually dedicated to the HIs. And there are a lot of harassment in this regard in the streets visibly too. To come back to the gendered experience of waste pickers of this job, I mean, this is a job that is, I think, very well suitable for female, as they often say, because they can work quite freely in a sense of that they are able to stay at home, for example, if they feel unwell or more often that is the case when children are get unwell, when they get sick, they can just stay at home and do not fear. There's no need that they fear or losing their job, for example. But also they have not really fixed working hours, so they can be flexible in when they go for collecting, uh, whether they go under what, what conditions. That makes actually the whole profession quite suitable for poor women, I would say. And in this regard, they often told me that that this harassment that they experienced, that they often try to 
neglected, actually. I think that's great. We've got a real sense now of what the Ajay do. And having done that, I'd like to turn now to some more of the theoretical concerns of the book. First of all, you say it's useful to think of waste processing as an infrastructure, and you introduce this idea of infracycles, that's a bit hard to say, infracycles, as a way of understanding how the waste processing infrastructure works. Can you outline what you mean by these concepts and how they relate to each other? When I was starting my research, I was um, thinking of which theoretical concept could be a good starting point to crest actually not only the whole recycling economy on site, but also how can I make sure that I emphasize and make visible the very valuable work that waste pickers and especially female waste pickers are doing in the country. And so I was stumbling over the theoretical corpus of social science of infrastructure studies. And there were many scholars writing about, of course, breakdowns, maintenance, promises, and especially, of course, about hard physical objects like bridges and infrastructures. And I came across Abdul Malik Simon's idea of people as infrastructure, which I find quite compelling somehow, because he said that people are often are the infrastructure. So that means that it is not only enacted an infrastructure, but they are in the sense of ontological. They are the infrastructure. So or other way, way around said if there weren't people doing the job, there weren't an infrastructure. So this is a completely different understanding of what I perceive as a rather Northern Hemisphere understanding of infrastructure, where infrastructure is something linear or often perceived as linear. Something goods are traveling from A to B, are a certain condition under which this infrastructure work, it's often somehow visible, sometimes not, of course, but it's often functional <laughs> or labeled like that. So actually, I was thinking about how this fits somehow to the, my local context. And I realized that actually on the recycling economy in Cambodia is very much like an infrastructure in the sense of Abdul Malik Simon's idea of people as infrastructures. And also, I also draw somehow on Brian Larkin's idea of infrastructures as a collaborative network of different actors. How do infracycles fit into that picture? Infracycles was somehow the result of my research, of course, <laughs> in the sense that I realized why I was walking with Echai throughout the city, that there's a circularity within this whole economy or infrastructure that is, stays often unseen while looking at infrastructure. As I said, infrastructures are often perceived as something linear. Actually, in my example, that was not the case. Of course, there was a kind of linear sequence, so to speak, while, for example, materials such as yeah, waste were moving or transported somehow from A to B, but it was never from A to B because it was also circulating within a single networks before going transported to other networks or communities of practice, how to speak. So actually, in this sense, I was very much interested to grasp the infrastructure from a different angle. And I realized that there are more circulations on work than there are linear process on work. So I just substituted the terminus of structure with cycle to highlight the processal and very practical in the sense of praxis dimension of this recycling economy or infrastructure. So actually, I eventually I defined somehow infracycles at social material constellations that come into being through certain practices of different actors, but also materials like boundary materials of waste, and that are embedded in certain, yeah, post-colonial produced structures of inequality. That's somehow the definition of infracycles at the end. <laughs> and really embedded in that concept is another idea that you referred to earlier, which is the idea that waste is a relational category. Can you explain also what exactly what this means and how understanding waste in this way shapes waste studies as a field? 
That's a very good question. So waste per se is relational category. That means that waste per se is not always waste. So neither it's a universal category or a material that is always the same. Can it be used and handled like that? But it is often perceived like that. However, there is actually a relational turn somehow in the social sciences, if a, yeah, so to speak. And of course, it's not only what waste is perceived as relational, but there are many other categories that nowadays are perceived by anthropologists as the scholars and other social science scholars as relational. So it's very much, it's an all-encompassing paradigm change from seeing something from its material components or an actor-related borderness to the relations of things. So also waste is relational. But of course, this has a decided influence on waste studies because there are waste studies. So traditionally, waste studies consists of research also from natural science, for example, and engineers. So in this regard, it has not much influence, actually, I think. But there is a growing fear on critical social science waste studies, also often named as discard studies, for example, that look precisely on waste as relational category, or also, for example, in the, within the realm or the framework of anthropology of waste, of course. The advantages of seeing waste as a relational category is definitely that it can broaden the field in a way that there are different empirical examples becoming important emphasize and elicit at the same time how waste is differently understood in different cultural contexts or situational contexts too. And speaking of different situational contexts, in your the more theoretical part of your book, you also talk about waste racism, which is, of course, a concept that was introduced in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about what it meant in that original context, but also what it means in Cambodia? So, yeah, racism, I I mean, that's a terminus that derives back somehow from environmental racism, a category or in the concept that was coined by Robert D. Bullard that actually described the systematic targeting of, in these times in North America, black communities. So that means that racism is played out and make visible, especially on sites where, for example, toxic pollutants are exposed on sites where just there is a certain environmental hazards on site where vulnerable and already marginalized groups of a society are affected. So actually, this is also quite true for Cambodia in different senses. First of all, in there's the dimension of not looking on first on site in the sense of what happens in one country, but to see this whole idea of Cambodia, but other Southeast Asian countries are considered as the global sink of the world somehow, where waste is transported to these countries, which they additionally marginalize somehow. And because waste per se is often, or not per se, but waste is often labeled as something that is dirty. And those people or actors or whatever who is or what is entangled with this waste is also often devaluated. So this is a kind of environmental or waste racism that is a globally racism and that just works on the basis of previously laid infrastructures of politics that derive somehow back from colonial times. So this is actually a post-colonial thing still going on. And on the other hand side, of course, in Cambodia on its own, I mean, there are, of course, certain uh, vulnerable groups and marginalized communities that are further degraded while they are living next to the dumping spheres, for example, or next to the dirty sewers or yeah, something like that. So there are two dimensions in this waste racism that I brought up in this regard. Because, I mean, I really understand how that works sort of in the global waste economy. In Cambodia itself, why invoke race rather than class? I forgot to say that. 
<laughs> it's not so much race in the local context, it's rather class. So yeah, definitely. So that's where I brought in the, the terminus of devaluation, because actually it doesn't work with the race. It, it works in different other categories and examples with the terminus of racism. But what really plays an, an, somehow an important role is the class actually in the social status of people. So this concept of valuation work, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So actually, the argument here is somehow that I say that by introducing certain notions about how waste should be probably managed, devaluation is coming with it along. So, and this devaluation takes place in different categories or in different situations. For example, when it comes to people living next to the landfill, um, but also when it comes to certain ideas that are circulating about how waste could be elsewise. And it is not elsewise in the, in the local situation, no? So that is actually the status quo, how else, elsewise somehow waste could be handled and recycled. But the point is that those visions that often come from Global North or international actors that strive for a cleaner environment and a better health for the overall planet, that these visions are very determining and in the sense are very devaluing certain kinds of practices and worldviews and actually also people and bodies on site. Thanks for that. There's a lot of conceptual work going on in this study and I think it's really great that the listeners get a sense of the main concepts you're working with. I'd like to talk now about some methodological questions. You start by invoking the idea of mapping. I've always had a deep fascination for maps and I was interested in hearing from you how conceptually and methodologically this act of mapping is integrated into the study? Actually, I was mapping, uh, I used maps in different manners. So first of all, let waste pickers through maps, for example, so in the sense of the method of mental mapping. So it made it possible for me somehow to follow what they find interesting, for example, on their routes or what is of higher importance, which households and so on. So to understand the social relationships, they are also embedded while picking, while doing picking. On the other hand, side, of course, I was working also with uh, city maps as this was also an urban research. And I used them as kind of pictures or as representations of certain uh, social material constellations to, to make visible in the book how waste is mapped or not <laughs> and how routes are mapped or not. I mean, that's just to see how the appearances of waste and the practices of waste picking, for example, but not only from, from HIs, but also from you know local NGOs, for example, how this is depicted in pictures, for example, too. That was from one empirical entrance door to understand the overall situation. And another clear empirical entrance point is your use of images. I love in the book you use an image to start each chapter. And I thought that was a great, a great way to integrate a really physical sense of your, of your field site. But what broader role did visual imagery play as a methodological tool for you? Yeah, I made a lot of images <laughs> and pictures, actually. So I eventually wanted to get this data somehow also being visible in the book. I think that is one of the points or main points why I decided to having this kind of intercovers interpages in between to separate each chapter. Because I think often anthropologists or ethnographists are working with a wide range of data which do not come into, into visible being in the end result, like a book, for example. Okay, this is changing at the moment, <laughs> thanks to whoever, but yeah, that's a good thing, I think. But however, so that is what was one point. And I think all these pictures and all the data which 
that I use in the sense of, I mean, not only pictures, but also images and what I find else wise on the posters, for example, or our movies or whatever. All these are very important data and they help me actually to find, yeah, to find the way through my way through the whole research topic and to answer my research question at the end. Definitely. I mean, I think they are tremendously important to understand something as waste as this is so often depicted in social media or, I don't know, on posters or whatever. So the, the dirtiness and the, the smelly, and even though smelly is not depictable, but yeah, something that one connotates quite quickly with that. So all this is very well depicted somehow in pictures and therefore it makes it tremendously important to also analyze these pictures and images, for example. And providing them to the reader certainly helps us understand as well. Another important issue, particularly with this kind of research, is the question of positionality. From my own experience, a white woman, even as a woman, being white gives people a lot of access to different kinds of informants and data. And in fact, I often reflect on the fact that working in Southeast Asia as a white woman, an educated white woman, gives me an honorary male status, which really makes me aware of just how unequal in gender terms Australia still is. But in your setting, can you reflect on the impact of your positionality as a white woman not only with the waste pickers, because that's the obvious question, but also with your elite of informants. That's a question, of course, anthropologists used to deal with it somehow, but it's it's always unfinished answered, I think. So it's always good to think about it again and again. So, um, of course, I made quite similar experiences. I'm white and I'm female. These are the, the appearances, the attributes of my person, which are visible somehow and the ground on which judgments are made on both sides. I mean, that's quite normal. I experienced that I was handled as being somehow not yeah not superior, but yeah, of course, standing somewhere else in kind of weird hierarchical order when talking to waste pickers, of course. But as anthropologists also know, and I just can confirm that somehow, the longer one part of the community, the better it gets. So because then there you share common experiences and um, and also sometimes feelings that brings you together in another way, and that also enacts kind of being together that is more worth or more valuable in the sense as what other preconditions would have been, I don't know, were formally more important. I don't know if this is clear. So, <laughs> but however, of course, I was also researching not only among waste picker groups, I was also many, not many, but also researching among elitist group and especially with, with regard to uh, non-governmental and governmental transnational organizations. So here, actually, I had rather the problem that I was female <laughs> was not the best position I could gain to talk on an equal level with those people because I was an anthropologist. So that means uh, from the social science with qualitative methods in the back. I was a woman and not an engineer. Um, so there were several parts of my identity that were rather sometimes constrict things and situations and talks I had with them. So, yeah, definitely. It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, that becomes so much more salient with elite groups and maybe with foreign groups because of, as you've said, the particular place that you sat in the academy as well as in other respects. I mean, I guess another aspect of that, which I often ask our guests about, is the question of interpretation. I mean, as an Indonesianist, it's really common for people to have fluency in the language and to not need to rely on an interpreter. But in Cambodia, even lots of Cambodia specialists 
are not quite where they need to be with their kamae to have all those conversations in an unmediated way. Can you reflect a little, um, when we think about anthropologists, we, we kind of think of someone who's so deeply embedded in a community and perhaps don't imagine the interpreter beside them. Can you talk to us a little bit about the methodological benefits and risks of engaging through in that mediated way in some of your conversations? So the opportunity to, I mean, or the advantage to work together with interpreters in the field is definitely that you you have the feeling at least that you are coming deeper into conversation at once because you, it makes you not so shy. <laughs> Let's say it like that. <laughs> so because, of course, when I started walking to waste, because actually I approached them on the streets, literally, because there was no organization I could run to and ask if they could provide me access to these groups but because there was none. So actually I started talking to them on the streets and I did that at the beginning without any interpreter. So that was really, yeah, it was interesting situation, let's say it like that. However, after a certain while I realized, okay, I need an, need an interpreter to get to dive deeper into the material, into their life worlds, into their spoken life worlds also, because I did a lot of participant observation where I hadn't any interpreter with me, for example. So it were mainly throughout the so-called formal interviews where I use an interpreter. And the, as I said, the advantage of using a mediated and interpreted conversation is definitely that I was not so shy to ask questions, actually, and that really helped out somehow. The other thing is the risk, of course, is the translation. I mean, interpretation is somehow, it's also, it's not an ongoing problem in anthropological research, but it's, I mean, the analysis of empirical data is interpretation. So... <laughs> And that is where you do not have an interpreter anymore because it's already translated. So there is one problematic in interpretation per se. And the second one is using an interpreter, of course, because this person, of course, has its own worldviews and their own ways of translating things, even though if they translate one to one. So they're still kind of summarizing or kind of anticipating answers. And that is also, I'm also talking about body habits and body communication and so on. So, yeah, it has both coins of the both sides of the coin, I think. On a lighter note to finish, in your preface, you talk at length about the impact of smell on you as a researcher, conducted not as much as you, but some field work in smelly places, including having fish juice dripping on me for some hour, you know, an hour or so while I talked to an informant while I was helping to sell him fish. I must say I was a very good seller. The novelty value really increased his income that day. But I just couldn't handle the sorts of smells you must have encountered. Do you have any tips for people contemplating doing smelly research? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, smell is quite differently. So, for example, Anna Tsing, I mean, the mushroom at the end of the world talks about smell as something that is quite odorous and I mean, mushroom smell is definitely completely different than waste smell in generally, I would say. So if I would give advices for researching in smelly places that are rather disgusting, I would just say stick on it somehow because it goes better. It, it's just a normal way of getting used to it somehow. And at one other point, it's not that you do not smell it that obvious anymore, of course. But however, of course, this also relates very much to one's own background and experience and social life, of course. And I often perceive that people that deal with waste issues have anytime uh, formally get in touch already with this kind of smelly materials. So it is not really an advice, but an explanation maybe. The advice would be just stick on it and don't be scared about it or something. So, but dig into dirty topics. That's quite interesting. Well, thanks so much, Catherine, for your insights into Cambodia's waste economy. I'm sure... 
the listeners have a lot to reflect on from our conversation. But before we wrap up, do you want us to, to tell us a bit about what you're working on now? I'm working on a not completely different project. It still has something to do with discard and postcolonial ways of doing politics, definitely. But it goes more in direction of flood protection measures. So I'm looking precisely on uh, flood resilient technologies like dam, huge dam projects in the Mekong Delta, for example, between Mekong Delta and the Ho Chi Minh City, but also how flood resilient is enacted out in Phnom Penh, for example. And I'm looking precisely on how certain, uh, yeah, also heteronormative, not, not only hegemonial, but also heteronormative worldviews are inscribed into these kind of technologies and how they are implemented on, on ground, what kind of effects they have on social life on site, but also what kind of alternatives, or not alternatives, but what are kind of other locally practiced resilience in this kind of flood resilience actions are taking, are taking how people perceive floods, how they deal with them. And also I'm very much interested in how this kind of imaginaries about floods are further perpetuated by a certain predominant autonormative understandings of floods as something that is kind of dangerous. With regard, for example, on the basis of satellite images, for example, where flood modeling predictions can be erected or other resilience programs that are in correspondence against with sustainable development goals. Catherine Attell, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss recycling infrastructures in Cambodia, circularity, waste and urban life in Phnom Penh. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on this channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies. (laughs) 